A large survey sponsored by Slack, an intra-company messaging application, raises a question. Is it really a good goal for organizations to get everyone back in the office? And actually a second question. Would companies and government agencies do better to educate managers on how to better deal with a workforce that's scattered? Some home, some in the office. We get some reactions from our resident workplace expert, Bob Tobias. And Bob, what was your take on this data that uh, maybe this rush to everybody get back to the office, we're normal again, may not be all that great an idea? Well, Tom, I think it's interesting that that survey validated some of the good things that people like about working at home. You know, they like working in sweatpants. They like not having long commutes. They like not having lunch expenses and they like flexibility. But the survey also revealed some other things that I found very interesting. First, they found that the pressure to work more hours and be available more hours declined over this two-year period of working at home. They also found that more employees were evaluated based solely on their work rather than on likability. So it was more objective than subjective standard. And interestingly, women reported that they liked having the flexibility of setting their own at-home work temperature rather than being cold in the workplace because offices set their temperatures based on the resting metabolic rate of a 40-year-old man weighing 154 pounds. And it was also easier to avoid the feeling of being excluded by office cliques or a feeling of not fitting in because they were working at home on Zoom. And finally, many employees reported that they were able to avoid the microaggressions that were often present in the workplace. So I believe that these folks, when they're going to come back into the workplace, are going to be wanting what they experienced at home transported into the workplace. And the question and challenge is, are agencies going to recognize these needs or assume that the past before the pandemic will be implemented automatically when people come back to work? That idea of rating people on likability, which I don't think is a criterion anyone has in writing as one of the company or organizational attributes they seek, I guess there's other ways of saying it gets along well with peers and this kind of stuff. And the idea of the social unpleasantries that can happen in a large workplace with cliques and so forth, as you mentioned, are somehow related because someone could do excellent work, but they're just not socially part of the, I don't know, in fabric that might be in a workplace. And so therefore they get downgraded and so on. Whereas when they are out of sight, and only the work can be seen, then evaluations become more objective, more related to the goals of the organization. Is that a valid connection? It is. And that's what these surveys found. The person who either is seen as a wallflower or believes themselves to be a wallflower is now evaluated on what's produced because everyone is a wallflower when you're working at home. In fact, it can work to the opposite way. That is to say, someone who could do great work but is horrible 
actively to have around the office could almost save themselves if they were remote. I'm thinking of an employee around here many years ago who was well-known and did great work in terms of what was presented to the public, but would shout and holler and swear at colleagues, even to the custodial staff one night. And that's kind of what did him in. And so if he'd never been in the office, he might have still been working here. Absolutely. And so the challenge for managers and leaders, as more people are coming back to work, as I said, are are we going to assume that the past was so great or are we going to use this opportunity as creating something new and better in the future? I mean, for example, are agencies upskilling managers to recognize the need for empathy and understanding? I mean, the fact of the matter is that people have changed over this period of two years. And because of a lack of in-person communication, I don't really understand how much you've changed, Tom, or how much I've changed. So am I going to acknowledge that and have the empathy to connect on a new basis? And our agency is going to encourage managers to really spend the time to make new connections rather than assuming everything's going to pick up where they left off. And will they take time to plan and to train and to encourage the creation of something new? And I have not heard any agency discussing this aspect of its return to work policies. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. What you say is something that's reflected in that study, and that is people coming back, if they come back, are not the same people as who left before the pandemic for a variety of reasons. But I wanted to ask you about the idea of a two-tier system, those that are obligated to be at the work site and those that have, if you want to call it that, the luxury of being able to be remote or be teleworking. And I'm just wondering if that's a red herring because, say, I'll just pick out an agency at random, the Postal Service. You've always had headquarters staff, planners, analysts, IT people that can work from anywhere versus the delivery staff, which is out there on the field necessarily. And it hasn't destroyed the Postal Service having that different class of employee. Well, I'm wondering if the test should be the presumption that I work remotely unless there's a need that I come to work in person. And certainly the need for the letter carriers to deliver, they got to do that. But the other folks' presumption of working at home until there's a need for people to get together, to work together, to brainstorm, to solve problems together that they can better do in person than at home. So it seems to me that a hybrid opportunity should be present, but not an artificial hybrid opportunity where you must be at work for three days or you must be at work for two days, but rather you come together when there's a real need for interconnection and interrelationship. Because those that have been teleworking and still teleworking to a large extent often state that They are so sick of being confined to the dining room or the home office or whatever it might be, Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, that the end of the day, it's more exhausting than, you know, being with people and then driving home or taking the mass transit home. So it works both ways. It does. And what I'm suggesting is to take into account it works both ways and 
create a workplace that convenes based on need as opposed to an in-person workplace that's artificially created. I must be there for two days every week or two days every pay period or whatever it is, but based on need. It seems like part of that managerial training to deal with that type of workforce should include, therefore, solid, referenceable metrics as to what constitutes good performance so that the person's presence is not required to measure whether they're doing the metrics of what you need from them as an employee. Absolutely. This likability factor is... Overrated. (laughs) Yes, overrated. I mean, certainly I have to be likable. I'm using that term loosely. I have to have the skills in a knowledge workplace to be able to relate to my colleagues, to learn from them and them to learn from me. But that doesn't mean that I have to fit into a group. It means that I have to be able to connect with people in a group and advance the goal of the group. And that I want to be rated on that contribution as opposed to whether you as the leader like me. I mean, that should not be included. And yet that's a common complaint in the workplace. And in your contacts with federal managers now and people aspiring to be managers in your your own daily work, do you have the sense that the government is on this train to get everybody back and maybe there's an opportunity that's about to be lost? I do. I really do. Because the goal is to get people back to work, not to get people back to work in a way that increases their productivity or takes into account the change that has occurred between leader and led over this period of two years. And if the goal is merely to get people back to work, that can be done. I can order you back to work. But that does not take into account unlearning, learning something new, and creating a new and different and better workplace for the future. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy.